I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, and I'd like to offer some encouragement to those of you who think we'll never get through the book. We're at the halfway point of the book of Romans. And it's really a transitional point. You know, the first eight chapters of Romans are doctrinal. They're really a presentation of the gospel. And in those chapters, Paul tells us that we're all under sin. We all stand guilty and silent before a holy God. We have nothing to say, nothing to do, just waiting for God's judgment. But instead of getting God's judgment, God gives us His mercy. He sends His Son to the cross in our place. He pays for our sins. He redeems us. He offers us salvation. And He offers that salvation to all as a gift by faith apart from works. And when we receive that salvation, we find in the book of Romans in the first eight chapters that we're free from the law, we're free from sin, we're free from death, we're indwelt by the Spirit, we're made alive, we're made sons, we're made heirs, we're destined for glory. And as Paul closes out chapter 8, it just rings with triumph. He says, no one can be against us, no one can limit us, no one can charge us, no one can condemn us, no one can separate us from the love of God. And so our salvation is full and complete and forever. And that's a tremendous message. You say, well, then where is Paul going to go from here? There's eight more chapters. Well, in, in chapters 9 to 11, he really gives us what I consider to be a parenthesis. And I use that word parenthesis because if you put a little paper clip on chapters 9 to 11, you can go directly from the end of chapter 8 to the beginning of chapter 12, and you won't miss a beat. Because chapter 12 begins by saying, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord. And then he goes on with five chapters of practical exhortation. And so you could go directly here from chapter 8 into chapter 12, and you wouldn't notice that you were missing anything. But what Paul gives us here is a parenthesis. Now when I say parenthesis, I don't want you to get the idea that this is unnecessary or unimportant. This may be a little bit of a tangent, but it's an essential vital tangent. Because you see, in the first eight chapters, Paul has stirred up some controversy. He has raised some questions that he needs to answer. In chapter 3 and verse 9, he said, we're all under sin. Jews and Gentiles alike. There's no distinction. In chapter 3 and verse 30, he said, all are justified by faith. Jews and Gentiles alike. There's no distinction. In chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, he says that Abraham is the father of all who believe, Jews and Gentiles alike, no distinction. And you have to think at this point, somebody is speaking up and saying, wait a minute, how can there be no distinction? What about all the promises that God made to Israel in the Old Testament? What about promises like Jeremiah 31, 33, where God said to Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people. Somebody's got to be asking, well, what about all those promises? And the reason why that fits so well right here is because Paul has just told us in chapter 8 that God's promises are sure 
and that we are secure and that nothing can separate us. But you see, if God didn't keep His promises to Israel in the Old Testament, then the question is, how do we know God's going to keep His promises to us in the New Testament? If those promises to Israel in the Old Testament didn't hold up, then how are these promises to us in the New Testament going to hold up? So you see, this is an important question. This is a vital question. Is God through with Israel? Or as I've entitled this message, whatever happened to God's other children? Now Paul's going to answer that in chapters 9 to 11. And his answer is essentially this. Has Israel been rejected? Yes. Has Israel been blinded? Yes. Has Israel been set aside? Yes. In fact, look at verse 3 of chapter 9. Paul says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Paul says, I wish that I could change places with the people of Israel. And if Paul changes places with the children of Israel, what will his condition be? He says, I will be accursed and separated from Christ. Because that's where the Israelites are today. But having said that, he goes on in these chapters to tell us that that condition is only partial. Look at chapter 11 and verse 5. In chapter 11... He uses the illustration of Elijah when Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and then he fled from Jezebel and he prayed to the Lord in verse 3 and he said, Israel is all gone away from you and I'm the only one left. And God's response is recorded in verse 4. God says, no, I've got 7,000 men who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. God says, no, Elijah, you're not alone. I've got 7,000 others. I've got a remnant of believers still there. And then he says, Paul says in verse 5, in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. You see, Israel as a whole has been rejected, but God still has His remnant. It's only a partial rejection. And then secondly, he tells us it's only temporary. If you look at chapter 11 and verse 26, he says at the end of verse 25 that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and thus all Israel will be saved. How much of Israel? All Israel will be saved. You see, there is coming a day when God is going to fulfill those promises in the Old Testament to Israel, and all Israel will be saved. When the fulfillment of Zechariah 12.10, where the Lord says He will pour out His Spirit of grace on Israel, and they will look on Me whom they have pierced. And Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 1, where it says that Israel will come to God's fountain and receive cleansing from their sin and impurity. You say, well, why has God set Israel apart? Well, the New Testament tells us it's so that God could establish a new body made up of believers from all over the world. All countries, all tribes, all people coming together into the body of Christ. You see, God is really doing today what Israel failed to do in the Old Testament. God intended them to become His people and then to reach out to others. They never reached out. 
The one prophet that was sent out was Jonah, and what was he? He was the reluctant prophet. It's no wonder the whale threw him up. But see, one day, Israel's going to fulfill that. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 7, where it says there'll be 144,000 witnesses among the Jewish people. They will be leading the cause for Jesus Christ in a future day. But chapter 9, let me give you an outline for chapter 9. Three points. Number one, the rejection of Israel is not inconsistent with God's love. That's in verses 1 to 5. Two, the rejection of Israel is not inconsistent with God's word. That's in verses 6 to 13. And third, the rejection of Israel is not inconsistent with God's justice. And that's in verses 14 to 29. First of all, the rejection of Israel is not inconsistent with God's love in the first five verses. Notice verse 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Now, we just finished chapter 8, which is the mountaintop of the book. And I don't know about you, but I feel like shouting in triumph. And what is Paul doing? Paul is crying. Paul is experiencing deep, sorrowful grief. Paul goes from the mountaintop to the valley in one verse. You say, well, what's the problem? I mean, Paul just told us that all things work together for good. He told us that through all things we are super conquerors. He told us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. What could he be sad about? Well, he tells us in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. You see, Paul has an overwhelming burden for Israel. And he feels this surge of love for his kinsmen, the people of Israel. Now I want you to understand, this love was not reciprocated. Paul says, I love them. They didn't really love Paul. In fact, they hated Paul. He was at one time their number one patriot. He was at one time imprisoning and killing Christians. And then one day he took off for Damascus breathing threats against the Christians. And guess what? He came back a Christian. So he went from number one patriot to number one traitor in one day. And so the Jews hated Paul. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. And in that same passage, he says, I experienced dangers from my countrymen. They hated Paul. They wanted to see Paul dead. They even stoned him and left him for dead on one occasion. And that's why Paul has to say in verse 1, I am not lying. I'm not lying. Why does he have to say that? Because they would have trouble believing that he really loved his kinsmen according to the flesh. But as Paul thinks of Israel, as Paul thinks of his fellow Jews, he has great sorrow and unceasing grief. And he says, I would give away the blessings of chapter 8 for their sake. Now, is that amazing? He says, after saying nothing can separate me, he says, I would be separated for them. 
After listing all of our blessings which we possess, he says, I would be accursed for them. That word means damned. Now, I have to stop right there and ask us a question. Do we love lost people like that? Paul says, I would be accursed. I would be damned. I would go to hell if it meant they would go to heaven. I would give up my salvation for other people. Now, how many of us can say that? Most of us don't love lost people enough to even give up our comforts, our hobbies, our diddly little activities, much less our lives, or beyond that, our very souls. In Exodus chapter 32, Moses brought Israel to Mount Sinai. And on the mountain there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud and smoke and fire and thunder and the mountain quaked and God called for Moses to come up there. And while God was giving Moses the law, you know what the children of Israel were doing? They were making a golden calf and they were bowing down and worshiping it and they were saying, this golden calf is the God that brought us out of Egypt. And then they were having a drunken orgy. While God is giving the law to Moses, he sees all of this going on and he's furious. And he turns to Moses and he says, Moses, I'm going to destroy this people and I'm going to make a new nation from you. Moses goes down from the mountain. He sees what's going on. He sees the corruption that's taking place. He takes the golden calf. He melts it down. He puts it in their drinking water, makes them drink it. He has 3,000 people slain with the sword. Then he goes back up on the mountain. And you expect him to say, you know, God, about that idea of starting over, that's sounding pretty good. You know, instead of the children of Israel, they'll be called the children of Moses. That's not what Moses says. Instead, Moses says in Exodus 32, 32, these people have sinned exceedingly. But now, if you will forgive their sin, and if you won't, then blot me out of your book that you've written. Is that an amazing statement? God says, I'll destroy them and make a great nation out of you. And Moses says, no, destroy me and save them. You see, Moses is just saying the same thing that Paul says. Because they're both saying, we would go to hell if it meant the salvation of other people. You say, well, man, that's a pretty strange approach. Well, not really. Because what is the expression of Christ's love? Christ took our hell so that we might have heaven. God, Christ took our sin so that we might be righteous. When, when in, in the closing verses of Matthew 
chapter 23, Jesus comes to the city of Jerusalem, you remember? And he looks over the city and tears run down his face. And he says, I would like to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you're not willing. He wept over the city of Jerusalem even though he knew that only a week later those same people would be saying, crucify him. You see, that's the love of Christ. And since he's the source of our love, Romans 5, 5 says, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. Since he's the source of our love, then our love should also be sacrificial in character. I heard about a, a church that dismissed its pastor and someone asked one of the members why they had done it and the church member said, well, the pastor kept telling us we were going to hell. He said, well, what does your new pastor say? Well, he keeps telling us we're going to hell too. He said, well, what's the difference? He said, well, when our first pastor said we were going to hell, he sounded like he was glad. But when our new pastor says it, he sounds like it's breaking his heart. People often debate about what's the foremost ingredient in witnessing. What do you need to be an effective witness? Do you need programs? Do you need to memorize verses? Do you need gospel tracts? Do you need methods? Do you need gimmicks? What do you need to be an effective witness? The one thing that you need to have to be an effective witness is love. You see, if you love people enough that you would give your salvation to see them saved, you will be an effective witness. I don't care if you've got a plan, a program, a technique. If you've got that burden and you've got that heart for lost people, you will be effective. Because, you see, witnessing without love is just human toil and hypocrisy. John Knox said, give me Scotland or I die. Henry Martin said, oh, that I were a flame of fire in the hand of God. David Brainerd said, God, let me burn out for you. And he did. You see, that is the love of God expressed in reality. And that's Paul's heart for Israel. Now, let me add a couple footnotes right here. Number one, I want you to notice in verse 3 that Paul says, I could wish that I was accursed. You say, well, obviously he didn't mean that or he would have been accursed. Well, he, no. You see, he says, I could wish that I was accursed, which means he really couldn't do that. Because he literally meant it. He tells us in verse 1, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. He says, I've got witnesses, my conscience, Christ, the Holy Spirit. In front of them, I say honestly to you, I would give my salvation for the salvation of Israel. But Paul says, I could wish. And he says that because it's not really possible. And you know why it's not possible? Because four verses earlier, he had said, nothing can separate me from the love of God. Let me add a second footnote. In chapters 9 to 11, Paul is going to make the clearest, strongest statements in Scripture about the sovereignty 
of God. He's going to tell us in this very chapter that God is the potter and we're the clay. And then he's going to ask the question, what right does the clay have to tell the potter how he shapes the clay? None. He's going to tell us in this chapter that God chooses whomever he wants. And he's going to tell us that God shows mercy on whomever he wishes. God is sovereign. And I often hear people say that if you really grab onto this idea that God is sovereign, then it's going to cause you to stop doing anything. You're just going to say, well, God's in control. I don't have any responsibility. If you really believe that God is sovereign, you're not going to really be effective as a witness for Christ. But you know what I find interesting in this chapter? In the very same chapter where he most powerfully presents the sovereignty of God, we have the most passionate presentation of the heart of Paul for lost people. So he's holding on to the sovereignty of God and he's got a passion for people. He understands them both. I've got a powerful God and I've got a passion for the lost. The two go hand in hand. And not only does Paul love his Jewish countrymen, but so does God. And we see that by the many privileges that he showers on them. Paul mentions eight of them in verses 4 and 5. The first one, he says in verse 4, who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons. Exodus 4.22 says, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. God says in Hosea 11.1, When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. They were called, they were adopted, they were separated from all the other nations of the world to be God's very own. What a privilege. And then the second privilege, he says, is, and the glory. Now, that's probably a reference to God's Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. Children of Israel experienced the visible presence of God in their midst. When they were in the wilderness, every day when they woke up, they saw this pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night representing the very presence of God in their midst. When Moses went up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, it says the glory of God rested on the mountain. And the Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 40 that when they built the tabernacle, the glory of God filled the tabernacle. In fact, every single day when they were settled into camp, in the daytime, God's presence rested over the tabernacle as a cloud. And at night, His presence filled the tabernacle as a fire. They had the glory of God in their midst. What a privilege. And then third, he says, the covenants. Now, the covenants is a reference to the way God bound himself in special relationship to his people. And he's telling us that God chose to have special relationships with Israel. He made a covenant with Abraham, a covenant with Moses, a covenant with David. And the idea of covenants is so important in the Old Testament that you'll find that word used 253 times. God bound himself to the people of Israel. And then fourth, they had the giving of the law. You see, God didn't give the law to the whole world. He gave it specifically to the Israelites through Moses. And this law was really their constitution as a country. And it was God-given. Paul has really already mentioned this issue in Romans 3, 1 and 2. He says, what advantage has the Jew? 
What advantage has the Jew? Much in every way, for they have been entrusted with the words of God. And then the fifth privilege is the temple worship. Temple worship. They had access to God. They had the road to God. They had the way to God. The temple, every time they looked at the temple, they saw that God was showing them how a sinful human being can have access to a holy God. And it was through the sacrifice that was given. And then six, he mentions the promises. And you can look in the Old Testament and God gives promises about Israel to be a nation, to have a land, to be a kingdom. And then the seventh thing is in verse five. Whose are the fathers? Somebody said, if you want to be successful in life, you better be careful how you choose your ancestors. Well, God chose their ancestors. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, they had great roots. And then he comes to the capstone privilege, the eighth thing. He says, from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? The very promised Messiah of God, Jesus, was by flesh an Israelite. And so the culmination of all the privileges, adoption, glory, covenants, the law, temple service, promises, godly fathers, was all leading up to the giving of Christ, the greatest privilege of all. What a great honor. God actually gave them His Son. And if you'll notice, Paul adds, the one who is over all God, blessed forever. Or literally, he's saying, Jesus Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. If you wonder, ever wonder who Jesus is, just look at this verse. This is one of the greatest statements in Scripture about the deity of Jesus Christ. But what Paul is saying is that when God became a man, he became a Jewish man. And how did Israel handle this great privilege? Well, John chapter 1 tells us that the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. And in verse 11 of that chapter, it says, He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. God gave them his son, and they slew him. They said, thanks, but no thanks. We will not have this man to reign over us. Now, the accusation against the Jews in chapter 2 of Romans is you broke God's law. The accusation against the Jews in chapter 9 is much more severe. He says, you have spurned God's love. Now, my question would be, how do we apply a passage like this 2,000 years later? How do we apply this thing today? Who is it that's most privileged in our world today? Well, we live in a, quote, Christian nation with a Christian heritage built on Christian values. And you can still pull a dollar out of your pocket and on the back it says, in God we trust. But you know, as I honestly look around at my fellow countrymen, I see that most have spurned God's love, just like Israel did. And so the first point is Israel's rejection is not inconsistent with God's love. We see it expressed 
through the heart of Paul, and we see it expressed through the gracious privileges that God gave them. And then the second point is that Israel's rejection is not inconsistent with God's word in verses 6 to 13. Notice verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Israel has failed. God's word has not failed. You say, yeah, but what about the promises pertaining to Israel? They aren't being realized. And if they aren't being realized, then obviously God's word has failed. Well, look at Paul's argument in the rest of verse 6. He says, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. You see, Paul is saying the promises given in the Old Testament were not given to ethnic Israel. They weren't given so that anybody born as an Israelite automatically got saved. You see, if, if your name is Buckstein, it doesn't mean you're in. He's saying not all physical Israel is true Israel. In John chapter 8 and verse 39, they answered and said to Jesus, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children you would do the deeds of Abraham. And then a few verses later, Jesus said this about their father. He said, you are of your father, the devil. He said that to Israelites. Early in the book of Romans, in chapter 2, the last two verses, he says, a Jew is not one who is one outwardly, but a Jew is one who is one inwardly. See, Paul wants us to understand that God never gave the promises in the Old Testament to the whole nation. They applied to true Jews. And it's always been that way. God has always had His remnant within the whole. And that's why when we come over to chapter 9 in verse 27, he says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. The the size of Israel may be like the sand of the sea, but it's the remnant that will be saved. It's the remnant of true Israelites that receive the blessing of God. It was that same way when Jesus came the first time. It was a few individuals, Joseph and Mary, Elizabeth and Zechariah, Simeon and Anna, who Luke chapter 2 and verse 38 says, were looking forward to the redemption of of Jerusalem. They were true Israelites. When Jesus met Nathaniel in or Nathaniel in John 1:47, he said, "Here is a true Israelite." And it's the same today. What is a true Israelite? A true Israelite is one who is a Jew in the flesh who also accepts Jesus as the Messiah. And to illustrate this concept of that remnant within the whole, Paul gives two illustrations here. And he goes all the way back to the beginning. He goes back to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And he gives two illustrations of how this was the way God operated from the very beginning. The first illustration is Isaac. Notice verse 7. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but, quoting from Genesis 21, 12, Through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Now, if you go back and list them, Abraham had several sons. He had Ishmael, Isaac, 
Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Who did God choose? Well, God chose Isaac. And you see, he's simply making the point that even Abraham's own sons were not all children of God. God never intended for all of Abraham's offspring to come under the promises. And then notice what he adds in verse 8. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. The children of God are not the children of flesh, but rather they are the children of promise. Now, Abraham had a son who was a classic example of a child of the flesh, and that was Ishmael. Ishmael was a product of Abraham's natural powers. God said, you're going to have a son, and I'm going to bless you through this son. And Abraham waited and waited for God to fulfill that. And finally, he said, I'm going to have to help God out. God can't pull this off. So he has a child with his wife's concubine, and then he brings the child to God and says, fulfill your promise through him. But God said, that's not my choice. He's not my child. You see, God works through the child of promise. And who is the child of promise? Look at verse 9. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And that's a quote from Genesis 18.10. You see, Isaac was the child of promise. Isaac was promised to Abraham and Sarah long after the age of childbirth. And so he was not a product of man's effort. He was a miracle of God. And it's the one that was the miracle of God that God says, he's my son. You see, God still works that way today. There is no such thing as a natural child of God. Nobody ever gets born into the family of God. We get born again into the family of God. If you are a child of God, it means that you have been supernaturally born again by the Spirit of God. You're a miracle child. And then he gives a second illustration. That second illustration is Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, here's Jacob, verse 10. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Now, Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. So you might, you might look at this first illustration, Ishmael and Isaac, and you might say, well, that was an easy choice because Ishmael wasn't a full-blooded Israelite. So now he moves to a second illustration. You can't argue that way on this one because these two boys are from the fa- same father and mother. They're both full-blooded Israelites. In fact, they're twins, can't get any closer than that. They were in the same womb together. Now, the natural choice would have been to take Esau because he was the firstborn. He was the older. But it tells us that God chose the younger, Jacob. Now, when did God choose Jacob? Well, verse 11 says it was before they were born. God chose Jacob over Esau while they were still in the womb. You say, well, then why did God choose Jacob? 
Did he look ahead and decide which one was going to turn out the best and choose that one? No. He tells us in verse 11, it was before they had done anything good or bad. And he tells us in verse 11, it was not because of works. Wow. God chose Jacob over Esau while they were still in the womb before any, either one of them had done anything good or bad because it's not by works. In fact, I think if God had looked ahead and seen how they would turn out, I'm not sure he would have picked Jacob because Jacob's name means deceiver and most of his life that's exactly what he was, a deceiver of other people and the Lord. You say, then why did God choose Jacob? Well, look carefully at the end of verse 11. It gives us a reason. It says, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Now, do you see the answer there? God chose Jacob in order that God's purpose might stand, and in order that God's choice might stand, and because of God who calls. Now, those are not touchy-feely answers. What's he saying? He's saying simply, God chose Jacob because God is sovereign. And he kind of confirms that in verse 13 by telling us, if you read verse 13, it says, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. That's a quote from Malachi 1-2. And if you read the context there, you'll find that nearly 2,000 years later at the end of the Old Testament, God is still honoring the choice that he made in the womb to choose Jacob over Esau. Jacob became the people of Israel. Esau became the people of Edom. And God continued to shower his blessings on the people of Israel and reject Edom. So what are we learning here? From man's point of view, salvation is not because of works, but by faith. From God's point of view, salvation is not because of works, but because of Him who calls. You say, that's a hard pill to swallow. That's the truth of Scripture. That's the sovereignty of God. And what Paul is telling us in this section is that Israel's rejection is not inconsistent with God's Word because God's promises were never given to all of Israel. From the very beginning, God has sovereignly chosen to make His promises to individuals. He chose Abraham out of all the pagans in Ur of Chaldea. He chose Isaac over all the children of Abraham. He chose Jacob over Esau. And today, He is still calling out His chosen remnant to whom the promises apply. You say, well, that... That just doesn't seem fair. How can God choose one guy over the other when they're in the womb, when they haven't done anything good or bad? It's, how can that be fair? Well, Paul anticipated that you would ask that question. And that's why in verse 14 he says, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? See, Paul's anticipating, your next question is going to be, well, if God chose beforehand... 
then is God really being fair? Do you have that question? Then you'll have to come back next week to get the answer. Because that's the third point in this chapter. Israel's rejection is not inconsistent with God's justice. And we'll see that in the remainder of this chapter next week. I think I've given you enough to chew on, though, for one week. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful today for your word. And Lord, some of the things in your word are hard for us to grasp because we as fallen human beings like to be in control. And we like to think that we control our lives and, and, and we make the choices and, 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 and we ultimately say what's going to happen. And yet, Father, this passage is very clear that you are a sovereign God and that you are in control. And Lord, as we wrestle with these truths, I pray that you would allow us to honestly receive your truth and let you be God. And Lord, we thank you for the privilege of having you tell us who you are in your word. And I pray, Lord, that we would adapt to who you are and faithfully follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.